The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most of you have probably visited Christ Church in Cambridge, right off of the Cambridge Common. It's an historic church, built in the colonial style. Painted white wood everywhere, inside and out, large windows down the side. It's beautiful in its own way, though I must say that I vastly prefer Trinity's timber, stone, and darkness. It's beautiful. <laughs> if you poke around churches, as I myself have a tendency to do from time to time, you'll find an unusual and beautiful icon hanging on the wall in the parish hall of Christ Church. It's painted in the style of ancient Orthodox iconography, not unlike the many lovely icons we have in our chapel. And like those icons, we come to this icon looking to see into heaven, while heaven looks into us. It appears in many ways like any other icon. It's layered in gold leaf. It uses bright, contrasting colors and shapes. In the upper left, above the figure, is the standard address of hagios, the Greek word for holy one or saint. 
To the right, the subject's name, Martin. The figure is not wrapped in robes, but rather appears as a modern man in an impeccable suit, gazing towards heaven, slightly over the viewer's left shoulder. In one hand, he holds a numbered card, and it's on a cord that's around his neck. The identifying number is 7089, the number he was given when his mugshot was taken. In the other hand, he holds a scroll which reads, How long will justice be crucified and truth buried? The bottom gives us his full name, Martin Luther King of Georgia. This icon was written by Brother Robert Lentz, a Franciscan friar, and it commemorates specifically an event in the spring of 1967 when Dr. King came to Harvard to organize a protest against the Vietnam War. He was not permitted to remain on Harvard's campus, so Reverend Murray, Murray Kenny, the rector of Christ Church at the time, invited Dr. King to come across the common into the church instead. Some of you here might even remember these events and what times they were, filled with hope and tragedy, loss and promise, confusion, and yet so much vision. However, today, I won't ask you to recall the past or if you're younger like me, to recreate it. Instead, I'd like to ask the question that this icon poses. What does it mean to consider Martin Luther King a saint? As you know, tomorrow we celebrate a national holiday honoring Dr. King's life and message. All over America, hundreds and thousands of us will gather to remember him especially as this past year marked the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. We will march, we will sing, we will volunteer and serve together. We will recite, I have a dream. Some of us will gather at his memorial on the National Mall, not very far from where he spoke those now famous words for us and for all of history. Dr. King is a cultural icon, a national hero, a champion of the dignity of marginalized people everywhere, an example of all we believe is best about America. But what does it mean to consider him as our saint? All of the commemoration, all of the political grandstanding, all of the history that we recall is dangerous. It is all dangerous because it puts Dr. King's message in the past. Statues and memorials, though well-deserved, deceive us into believing that the work is done or that the circumstances that gave rise to the civil rights movement have been sufficiently addressed, and that's all behind us now. The work is not done, 
The history and the politics are dangerous because they reduce Dr. King's message to one only about race as well. His message was about race, but not only about race. He denounced all barriers to our true equality and shared lives as citizens and children of God. War, ethnic violence, racism, and indeed unchecked economic systems devouring the lives of the poor. Shortly before he was killed, Dr. King began the Poor People's Campaign, showing both the racial and economic harm of our supposedly fair system. The culmination of this campaign, interestingly enough, was to be a march to Wall Street. And those of you who were at the adult forum today and heard our speaker, the Reverend Kate Laser, speak about Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Boston know the significance of this. With this in mind, we cannot say that the work is anywhere near to being done. The history and the politics are also dangerous because it is easy to forget that Martin Luther King was, first and foremost, a minister of the living God. He made his choices with an eye on heaven, not a desire for the headlines. If we consider Martin Luther King a saint, we must see his life and message as a prophet of Christ. As with all the teachings of all the saints we commemorate, this teaching is always true. It always calls us to listen to the Spirit. It always calls us to change our view of the world. It always calls us to respond as changed people. It always calls us to commit to action. Because for Christians, the work is never done until Christ returns and heaven and earth are made into one. So again, I have to ask, what does it mean to hold Martin Luther King in our heart as a saint? This pulpit is pretty high up, so I can see everybody pretty well. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you, but Trinity is pretty white. I am white. Some of us are people of color, of African descent, or not. But race and color are still real. By honoring Martin Luther King as a saint, color does not disappear. We miss the message if we think that. We may strive for a world in which the color of our skin does not matter, but we must strive in a world where it does. A year ago, my good friend Kenny Wiley, he and I went to Harvard Divinity School together, and he was preparing to be a Unitarian minister. Kenny is pretty tall. I guess he's about six foot three, in great shape. He's got this smile that just lights up every single room that he comes into. He's a black man, young, maybe about 24. And on one day in 2012, while wearing a, a jumpsuit that said Harvard on it, 
he was running late for the bus. So realizing he was running late, he began to jog a bit through Harvard Square. And as he was running for the bus, a middle-aged white man said, Are you running from the cops? What's the hurry? Race still matters. Just ask Kenny. Or the children of East St. Louis who want a quality education, just a fair chance at a full life. Or ask the family of Trayvon Martin, a young man who was denied the opportunity to even have one. We cannot pretend that race does not matter. That would be a lie. But we also cannot pretend that racism is separate from all other forms of social violence. Instead, like all sin, they are intimately linked together. It is easy to look at all of these problems, especially for those of us who are white, and to think, well, without any choice of my own, I've been thrust into this situation. That doesn't seem very fair. Well, it's not fair. But sometimes we inherit situations that we are called upon to fix. We might also say, I feel guilty about this. My status in society is a direct result of these unjust systems, slavery, segregation, and racial preference for my race. That is a profound and crucially important awareness to have. It's an awareness that we should all continually try to cultivate, because it goes really deep. Yet, we can obsess on it. We can obsess on our inherited privilege to the point of inactivity. Recognition of our privilege and obsessing on it can degenerate into non-interference. I'm going to stay out of it because I may do more harm. I don't understand this system. I may cause more harm. Or it might become a kind of a concern with tokenism. Oh, I don't want to just talk about race this one day of the year. That feels like I'm kind of doing the one-off, and that's just insulting to everybody, right? And then that might even degenerate into a kind of hopelessness. Well, there's nothing that I can do, right? But what's curious is that this message, which was once a clarion call to everybody in some of our lives, has become a choice to remain silent. Eventually, that silence can degenerate into even further, into resentment, anger with this situation. Why is this world so messed up? Anger at ourselves. Why can't I fix this? And even, as we see in some of the political polemic of our day, resentment towards the very people who have been harmed by these systems. The people of color who have been disenfranchised and who now, 50 years on, are sometimes portrayed as the source of the problem. Very dangerous. On the other side, 
is this sense that I've got to fix it. Right? Not, I'm not going to engage, but instead, I'm going to do everything I can. I know just what needs to be done. Here we go. When I was in graduate school, I went to the University of Chicago. I lived there for a number of years. And those of you who are familiar with Chicago know that the university is in Hyde Park, which is this little bubble of privilege. Both the university community, which is predominantly white, and also affluent African-Americans live in this community that is surrounded by a sea of destitute poverty, primarily African-American. And one of the consequences of this is that middle-aged African-American men come in to Hyde Park and they panhandle. They ask for money. So this is just a constant way of life if you live in Hyde Park. And it makes you feel uncomfortable. And I've been facing this and thinking about how to respond to this for years. And finally, one day I said, I know, I've got it. I know what I need to do. So I I was just finishing a meal. I walked out of the restaurant. Here comes a man down the road. He says, hey, you have any money? You know, spare any change? And I said, I know what this man needs. He needs a hug. So I just opened up and I said, come here. And he came in and it was probably one of the most awkward hugs I've ever had. And then he he pulled away. He says, hey, you get it. Now, how about 20 bucks? (laughs) Indeed, this was a classic example of what Nigerian-American author Teju Cole calls the white savior complex. Of course, as Christians, we know anytime that we're trying to be the savior, we're getting in Jesus' way. That's his job. But I want to put these two on either side of each other. One, this inactivity because of concern of tokenism, and on the other, the white savior complex, right? And what they have in common is a kind of a fear. We're gripped by the fear that we can't do anything, that we'll just mess it all up. So we sit quiet. Or we're gripped by the fear that we're not doing enough. We need to do more. We need to find a solution. Well, in the middle of that, We can be free from fear. We can let go of the fear. We can let God take control of this situation. How do we respond to racism, to the harms, to the ills of our time? The same way that Christians respond to anything. We pray. We open our hearts to God. We join in community with others, those who are like us and those who are not like us. We don't come to bring all the answers to save people. We come to be with these people, to share life with them, and to find out where God is calling all of us together. That is the vision to which St. Martin Luther King was calling us. 
Not just for some, but for all. Not just for the marginalized, his people, but for all people. Dr. Martin Luther King, our saint of the day, was a prophet like Isaiah. I leave you with these words. God says to Isaiah, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What does it mean to hold St. Martin Luther King as a saint? The answer is in our gospel today. Come and see. Come and see.